Welcome to Startup Nation Voices, a podcast of Startup Nation Mentorship and the World Jewish Congress. Startup Nation Mentorship pairs extraordinary college student leaders with top Israeli industry and government mentors. We currently operate on 20 campuses in six continents and enable students to develop meaningful, lasting relationships with Israelis who are in the center of the dynamic global economy and hub of innovation. In Voices, we bring on top Israeli and international leaders to share a deeper look into their industry and personal background, exploring the importance of mentorship and partnership with Israel. It's such a privilege to welcome Chaime Tesla to this week's episode. Chaime Tesla is a general partner at Outcrowd, which he joined at founding in 2012. Prior to his career in VC, Chaime worked in real estate in New York City, developing luxury apartments and housing. Prior to his real estate career, Chaime received his degree in rabbinics from the Chief Rabbi of Israel and studied marketing in New York, where he graduated cum laude. In 2012, Chaime moved to Israel with his wife and children. He is a technology enthusiast who loves learning and creating and is an amazing VC. I'm Dean Mayer, Israel Director and Investment Analyst at Outcrowd. And I'm Ilan Arnowitz, Director of Mentor Relations and a senior at the University of Michigan. Chaim Mayer, thank you so much for taking the time. We want to start off with by understanding a little bit more about our crowd. So in particular, our crowd is unique because of its crowdfunding model. What does this mean? For our listeners who may not know, what does it mean to be a crowdfunded? So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great question. Thank you. I'd say that there's a few different, you know, um, you know, models of crowdfunding. I think when most people think of the word crowdfunding, the first thing that comes to mind is something along the lines of Kickstarter. I think what we built at our crowd is more of a venture platform, right? So the way I think of it typically is that we're a VC with a distributed network of LPs, right? So we're enabling accredited investors globally to invest into companies and funds, and we give them the tools and the platform that enable them to create their own unique personalized portfolio. Cool. Um, I'll take that from there. But just in addition to that, in addition to that, um, so you, you mentioned the differences between Outcrowd and traditional crowdfunding platform. Could you elaborate on some of the deals that you've worked on um, or some of the big exits that Outcrowd have had just to give an idea to the people watching this, um, the actual value and, and I guess size of Outcrowd and some of the amazing deals they've, they've uh, invested in? Right. So, you know, I think, you know, to to give a few of the big companies that people would recognize um, as brands, we were investors in a company called Lemonade, which went public uh, earlier this year and has been doing fantastically well. It's a Israeli company uh, servicing the U.S. market uh, doing uh, insurance, but it's completely built from the ground up as a digital platform with, um, you know, many of the incumbents have been using the same technology um, to run their businesses, you know, for 40 or 50 years. Our crowd, um, Lemonade has, uh, you know, built the entire stack from scratch, starting with uh, home insurance, and then they've moved into different verticals um, as they expand and different geographies. 
Um, some of the other companies we've invested in, we invested in a cybersecurity company called Argus Security, which was doing automotive security. And they were acquired by Continental, the company who most of us would recognize for our car tires, but it was also one of the largest tier one suppliers for the manufacturers globally. Um, which other companies can I think of that will be recognized? Oh, we have a company called Beyond Meat. I think um, you know many listeners will yep. have tried that, and we managed to invest uh, prior to the IPO, enabling our investors you know to get in while the company was still private, and then benefiting from the tremendous uptick that has happened you know since the company has gone public, and. Last but not least, we invested in a little company in New York in, I believe it was 2014, if I'm not mistaken, called Social Bicycles, which rebranded as Jump and was acquired by Uber. And they provide the entire technology that enables Uber to um, rent out bikes and scooters, et cetera. Interesting. That's pretty some pretty outstanding returns, I must say. Um, and I guess veering, veering on to the next question, which is in the same direction, throughout your time in venture capital, you've invested in many different companies with different founders, different countries. What is the most important feature you look for um, in early stage companies? In early stage companies, you know, I mean, I think it's, everyone says that it's the people. It's the people, right? I mean, you're, you're in the, you know, I mean, I think that while it might sound like a redundant statement that people are continuously making, um, ultimately, when you're investing, you're taking money, usually millions and tens of millions of dollars, and you're giving it into the hands of you know some other person, and you have to trust that person is going to you know do what's needed, um, treat that money respectfully and in the right way, and um, you know we look at people who have the right kind of background, people who have the right kind of personality, people who have shown their abilities. You know, it's not always, um, you know, the, that they're necessarily repeat founders, but you can see who founders surround themselves with, the kind of management, the kind of co-founders they have. And you have to, you know, pay a lot of attention to that, especially, especially at the earlier stages of a company. You know, you need, you know, obviously, I think it goes without saying, but I'm, you know, I'm just going to state it. You need to be investing in a technology you believe in, and you have to be investing in a company that has a large enough market and has, uh, you know, a plan of how they're going to grab a sizable portion of that market. So, Chaim Mayer, you mentioned that people is one of the strongest indicators you look for in early stage startups. And if there's one thing that's true about you is that you know a, a lot of people. Um, so how have you been so successful at cultivating relationships within the Israeli ecosystem? Um, so honestly, when I moved to Israel, I really didn't know anyone. Um, I moved here, you know, 2012, and I had like a few friends <laughs> that, that lived in the country, but nothing relevant in terms of, uh, you know, the business I was going into. And... You know, I'd say it's sort of, you know, in the beginning, I pounded the pavement, right? I went to every single industry event that I could. Um, I would attend anything and everything. Um, I think, you know, even before I came, probably a year or two before, I started 
getting educated on the local ecosystem. And I had already reached out to CEOs of various companies and just started chatting with them with no specific um, agenda other than that I was moving to a country that I knew I wanted to you know, do a career change in. And um, I figured that I would, you know, better off starting to cultivate those relationships remotely. Um, and I think that, you know, just not being afraid to put yourself out there. I actually have an interesting story, which I haven't really told too many people. Um, I guess I'll give you the short version. Um, when I moved to uh, Israel, you know, I moved here with my, my wife and two kids, and I really didn't have much of uh, a game plan. <laughs> and, you know, it was sort of hectic and trying to figure out what to do and where I'm going to work, what I'm going to do. And, you know, I couldn't sleep much because, you know, I was worried. Um, and I had a strange, you know, one night, it was, I don't know, three, four in the morning, I woke up and I, I just couldn't fall asleep. So like everyone, I started playing on my phone. And I don't know what, why it happened, but I opened up Facebook and someone had posted a picture of Ben Gurion Airport and it was, you know, full of people. And I liked the picture and then, you know, I ended up dozing off and at about six, seven, I, you know, I was up again and I was checking my phone and I liked the picture of someone who I didn't even know. And I'm, I still today haven't figured out how that picture even showed up on my feed, other than the fact that maybe I live right next to the airport. So that's the only thing I can think of. And I liked the picture and he messaged me and he said, hey, I've just arrived in Israel and I am a writer for Forbes. Uh, do you know any tech companies that I can interview? And I was about to hit no. And then I figured, wait a second, you know, this is, you know, let me see what I can do with this. So this was at about seven o'clock in the morning. So I went on to every single Facebook and Twitter group and, you know, anywhere I could find to sort of post like, hey, which Israeli founders would like to get interviewed by Forbes? And being Israel, obviously, everyone wanted to get interviewed by Forbes. So, you know, I pinged the guy back and I said, hey, listen, we got a ton of people. What are we going to do about it? Um, and I believe it was a Tuesday. Yeah, it was a Tuesday that he landed. And so we said, you know what? He was staying at one of the hotels in Tel Aviv. And we decided that I would invite people, you know, the founders to come Wednesday night to, um, to the, the bar at the hotel. And, you know, everyone would grab drinks and he would sit on the side and do speed dating. Uh, as it turns out, we had so many people who wanted to come. We landed up doing it Wednesday night and Thursday night. And um, when we finished, we finally got to sit down and have a drink and, you know, just catch up. Uh, and the journalist was like, wow, you know, you know, you know, so many people here in Israel. And, uh, you know, thank you for helping me out. And I was like, well, you know, if I'm going to be completely honest with you, um, I hadn't met you before, you know, yesterday, and I hadn't met a single other person who you met. Like, I really didn't know anyone. Like, I sort of just figured, you know, <laughs> let me see what I can do and put this thing together. And, um, yeah, so that was, you know, sort of, I guess that shows a little bit of like putting yourself out there mentality. Um, so, you know, it was really just putting, you know, it doesn't hurt. And, you know, thankfully, Israel... I think as an ecosystem, people are open, people are friendly, people communicate, um, people, you know, you know, are happy to respond. I mean, they don't always respond immediately, but 
that's definitely uh, easier than in many that's other That's a really great story, uh, story Chaimer. Th- th- thank you for sharing that. So, so what is what is the main takeaway there? Is it that when building relationships, the key is to not be transactional and instead to help someone for the sake of helping them and, and not immediately say no? Is, is that what you gain from that? So, I mean, I, I gained a lot from that, but I think, you know, I'm not sure about the transactional thing because, you know, in, in since then, and, you know, once I've started doing what I do, when I engage people that I want to build relationships up with, you know, it's obviously that ultimately that'll happen. But I think that, you know, I think if you want to make something happen, um, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. And, and it doesn't necessarily have to be the easiest thing, but I think when you put yourself out there and it could be, you know, putting yourself out there in a way that I did, which is a little bit way out there. But, you know, when I want to, when I uh, read about an interesting company or I read about an interesting technology, uh, I'll just reach out to the founder and say, you know, let's have a cup of coffee. Let's have a conversation. And it doesn't, you know, I mean, I haven't thought about the fact that it's not necessarily um, transactional. Um, but for the most part, I think you build relationships with people and, you know, you foster the relationships that you want to foster over time. And then ultimately, if that lands up becoming a company you invest in, then, you know, you've built the relationship with the person. And you've also, one of the things that, you know, I've, I've noticed is when you build these relationships over time, you learn so much about people. You know, when you're when you're meeting a company that's actively looking for funding, the relationship is largely transactional, right? You're meeting them because you want to invest or to invest, and you know, both of you are trying to get to an answer of whether you're interested or not interested. Whereas many of the relationships I've started with founders have been uh, soon after they've done a round of funding, and that pressure to be transactional is off, and you can actually enjoy getting to know each other. And when you do that over a longer period of time, you see how people react. I mean, you, you obviously learn how the company's doing and how the company's progressing. But I think more important than that for me personally is you see, you know, if you schedule a meeting with the person, are they on time? Do they, when you're asking them questions about their business or following up on prior discussions, you know, how things progressed, how on top of their own business are they? Are they on time to meetings? Do they push them off? Are they easy to schedule with? How long is their, you know, response time? And, you know, ultimately when you do invest in companies, all of those things play into the fact that you're really building a long-term relationship with a founder and you want to have a relationship with someone that you want to be in a relationship with, someone you want to deal with. Um, you know, we, we, you know, every day we, we spend more hours working than we do with, you know, our, you know, significant others or kids or whatever. And uh, it's important to surround yourself with people that you want to be around. A lot, of, a lot of really, really great advice here, I must say. So for more advice, next question, um, what advice would you give students who are looking to develop a skill set and specifically looking to come into venture capital upon graduation? That's a good question. I think that, you know, venture capital is, is, it's not necessarily the easiest thing to get a foot into the door. You know, relatively few VCs uh, compared to the, the number of people who would like to be joining them. And that sort of puts the bulls in the, in the VC's court. Ultimately, I know when I'm looking for someone who I want to hire, 
for me, the most important thing is, you know, obviously I think the word is alacrity. I want people who are awake, who are, you know, they're interested, um, people being lifelong learners and spending the, you know, spending the time learning things themselves, uh, you know, learning about what's happening in the ecosystem and, you know, showing that they actually have a passion. And I think that that's, that's key. And it's definitely key for me when I'm hiring someone, but I think that for, for anyone going into anything, and I don't think it's necessarily true of VC, if they want to enjoy their time working, then they need to make sure that they're doing stuff that they're passionate and that way they'll, you know, they'll show up to work every day with their whole selves and, you know, be able to do what they want to do because ultimately they'll really be doing what it is they want to do. You know, you're not there for a, a nine to five, but you're there to learn. You're there to pursue your passions. You're there to engage with things. And I think one of the most important things is, at least in venture capital, is you get to be a part of creating the future. You get to be a part of investing in ideas that you believe you would like to create in the world. You know, you're investing in founders who you believe can create change and you're investing in companies that are creating products that you would like to live with, that you would like to exist in your lifetime and your kid's lifetime. So I think that's, uh, you know, that's, that's important. And uh, yeah, most importantly is make sure that it's, it's something you want to do. And that, you know, that's, that's true for anything. So Jaime, you, you recently wrote um, an amazing Medium article. And for our listeners who haven't checked it out, I, I definitely recommend doing so um, about what you've learned in the past eight years in venture. And one of the points that you mentioned was timing. And I think that this is a component that's often overlooked by founders. Tell us more about the importance of timing and what a founder can keep in mind when they're trying to convince you that the timing is now for the investment. Right. So, I mean, I think that there's, you know, there's lots of things that are important about timing. And I think that there's, there's the timing of when something is ripe to go to the market. And that's, uh, I finally, I was having a discussion with the CEO about that today. You know, in Israel, we have great technologists you know, as a given that, you know, there's, there's Israelis are really, really good at building technology. Um, and I'd say a little weaker on the market side of things, as opposed to the U.S. Um, founders who are usually stronger at the market and not as strong as the Israelis on the technology side necessarily. And, you know, sometimes you can build an amazing technology, but you can be early to market. And you have to make sure that as a founder that you keep your company going and that you exist long enough for the market to catch up to you. Right. You can also educate a market, which is a very expensive endeavor. Right. You can um, be part of educating a market. You can let other people in, uh, educate a market. Um, but there's, you know, there's times that are ripe. I think that if you look at, for an example, ours, you know, three years ago, everyone thought it was happening, you know, in two years. And now we're in 2021 when everyone was expecting to be driving, you know, or just getting in a car and telling it where to go. And we think we have more realistic expectations, um, you know, being more of a 2025 to 2030 sort of reality in our world. And I think I've seen the same um, for things like VR, 
right? VR was super hot five years ago. Everyone wanted to be investing in VR and, you know, companies like Magic Leap managed to raise billions of dollars. Um, but the market wasn't there. The timing wasn't right. People weren't ready. The hardware wasn't available. And, and it doesn't mean people shouldn't work on things, but it means that the successful companies are the ones that manage to time things right. And, you know, I think that smarts and luck, right? You can, you can, you can anticipate and you can plan all you want, but you got to make sure that, you know, you, you know, first of all, foremost, you exist when the market around you is ready for your product. Uh, and you can't be too early. And, you know, if you're late, there's, there's other costs associated with that. I think that I read a quote, which I haven't been able to find the original source of, which is that people drastically overestimate what will happen a year and drastically underestimate what will happen in a decade. And I think that it's always important to keep in mind when uh, looking at a company or when founding a company that you have to see how mature the market is or if you're early to market, how far out you honestly believe that market will happen. So, so Chaim, so you mentioned the technological advantage that you see a lot of Israeli companies having. Um, on that note, you know, we all know, um, and if you don't know, that Israel is, they do have the most startups per capita uh, and a bunch of other really cool uh, kind of KPIs that make them stand head and shoulders above a lot of other um, startup ecosystems. So what do you think makes Israeli startups so unique? I mean, what, what is it about the companies? What is it about the ecosystem that just makes companies, you know, we see these massive companies coming out of Israel, such a small country. Um, what, what is it? I mean, I think it, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of um, factors at play that come into that. So I think in terms of the um, being great technologists, I think that we have an ecosystem, you know, with the army and the units that, you know, as a small country in order to protect ourselves, um, the only way to sort of create a scalable protection service for the country was to create as opposed to many other countries that could afford to protect themselves with manpower. Um, Israel just couldn't do that. So you have, you know, computer vision, busy watching the borders, and you have, um, you know, machine learning algorithms, um, you know, understanding data that are, are, you know, being collected from other sources and trying to understand it. And you have all these different cybersecurity companies who are, you know, being proactive and protective for the country and its information. And um, that sort of creates an ecosystem where you have, you know, relatively young people going through the army, but, you know, going through the army as a school, right? People who want to get into the, the, the best units in the army are taking advanced maths and preparing to go to, uh, you know, some of the top schools in the world. And that's just to get into the army that they want to, into the unit in the army that they'd like to get into. So you have a lot of this education coming. And once you're in the army, um, it's not a theoretical university, right? There's no theory. People aren't, uh, you know, theoretically uh, practicing or building systems. You're building stuff that's protecting your life, your family's life, your neighbor's life. Like, this is real stuff. So I think it's uh, you know, it's a really uh, a practical way to learn. Um, I think that as a country, Israel, 
you know, that that was part one. I think as you know, you're saying about the the many companies, the you know, the big companies that have been coming out of the ecosystem here. I think it took a long while to sort of break the initial billion dollar exit mark in Israel. I mean, I think before Waze, there was three, maybe three companies, but Waze was the first company, I think, to do it um, in a time span that made it, you know, um, investable, so to speak. And then since then, there's been a lot more companies that have hap- that have, have, have become billion dollar companies in the ecosystem. I think it's becoming a real player in the unicorn market, so to speak. And I think that's largely to the, it speaks to the fact that the management skills needed to scale up weren't previously in the ecosystem, right? People who were um, able to manage and grow big teams were being hired out by the big companies coming to Israel, you know, the, the big five, Microsoft and Facebook and Apple have all got offices here. And I, I don't remember how many hundred, um, you know, plus of the largest conglomerates have uh, R&D centers here and they were hiring the brightest minds. And I think that there's been a shift in the mindset where those minds uh, would rather challenge themselves to creating things. And that's helped create the management layer that's needed in the ecosystem to create these large companies. And lastly, I think that in Israel, um, due to this, the, you know, as I was saying earlier, that you can really connect to other people. In Israel, I feel uh, that there's, there's playbooks, right? So no one really figured out how to do, you know, online B2C until Wix, right, became a billion dollar company creating web pages for everyone. And since then, you've got a whole lot of B2C companies that have sort of learned a playbook that worked for Wix and, uh, you know, becoming unicorns based on learning the playbooks and hiring the right management and out of Wix or getting them as advisors. And people cooperate a lot more in the ecosystem. It's, you know, I think 80% of all of the startups in Israel are still located, you know, within a few kilometer radius. Um, around Tel Aviv and within Tel Aviv. So, you know, we're talking about, you know, you're you're a 15 minute drive from every other person in the ecosystem or at least 80% of them. And people are open to communication and that enables information uh, to pass quickly and people communicate about what's worked with them, what's worked for them and help other founders to benefit from their experiences. Thought it was really interesting, Jaime. I saw a LinkedIn post that you recently made where you referred to Israel as the scale-up nation versus the startup nation. And so being able to constantly break these barriers, which is a result of the entrenched mindset that's cultivated from the military with, it sounds like what you're saying, this shift in mindset uh, caused by the growth of management of people able to take these startups to scale-ups is really exciting for the landscape. Thank you so much for taking the time. Um, this has been incredibly uh, valuable information that I know Dean and myself have enjoyed, and I know our listeners will as well. Mayor, we don't want to take up any more of your time. Hopefully, we'll see you in Israel soon. Best of luck to you. Looking forward. Thank you, Dean. Thank you, Elon. And uh, thank you to everyone who listens to this. And if anyone has any questions, you know, feel free to ping me, and uh, I'm happy to follow up. Thank you.
Thank you.